This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 705. This week, we welcome, welcome Robert Junkman, Vice President of Codes and Engineering at the Canadian Wood Council. We're going to talk about building science and wood, a balanced design approach. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget after the show to continue the discussion online at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. IAQ Radio Plus Marquee Sponsor is First On Site Property Restoration at firstonsite.com. IAQ Radio Association Sponsors are ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at acgih.org. AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org. IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA, at RestorationIndustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA, at EIA-USA.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com, TSI Inc. at TSI.com, Tramex Meters at TramexMeters.com, and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report that no one identified the MGM Grand retroactive insurance litigation case is the high-profile insurance case in which a retroactive insurance policy was sold after the loss. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for today, July 14, 2023, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IQ Radio trivia question. Name the hard and durable wood that sinks in water due to its density, has a Class A fire rating, and was used to build the Coney Island boardwalk. Back to you, Joe. Thanks, Cliff. Robert Junkman joined the Canadian Wood Council in 2005, progressing to Director of Codes and Standards, Structural Engineering in 2014, and the Vice President of Codes Engineering in 2021. He has extensive experience in structural engineering, building science, and energy issues, and is active in the codes and standards development with the Canadian Home Builders. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Let, let's start with a little bit of background about the Canadian Wood Council. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what they do? Sure. Yeah, I'm going to just also share uh, some slides here. Great. There we go. So that way some people can uh, can see what we're talking about also. 
Yep. And if we could just describe it a little bit for those that are just listening Absolutely. to the podcast. So the Canadian Wood Council is, um, it's really an association of associations. It's, um, it was founded in 1959. And we're actually about to celebrate our um, 65th, 65th um, anniversary next year. So it's been around for a while. Uh, July 8th is our is our birthday. So that just passed. And what we are is a national federation of associations. And so the members are those producers uh, that that produce lumber, plywood, OSB, um, glue lamb, and, and other products that use lumber. And these are all Canadian. There's also, well, let's, let's first, before we go there, what's the most common wood used in construction? Uh, well, I mean, predominantly all houses, almost all houses are built with wood. So uh, lumber is the most predominant. And uh, hopefully they're using a wood sheathing product like OSB or plywood on the outside of of the building so that the house can withstand uh, the wind loads and the earthquake loads. And is it um, Douglas fir? I mean, what, I, I was always confused by it. It's like three different. Oh, I see. I see. Um Spruce pine fir is, is spruce pine and fir is a mixture that is used in Canada quite a lot and actually uh, exported into the United States as well from Canada, and that is our most common by far our most common lumber proper lumber that's used. Now, when you say spruce pine or fir, is that three different types of wood, or is that three different names for the same basic nope. type of wood? Uh, they're all softwoods, and uh, they are with the similar, very similar properties. But they are three different types of wood, uh, and because they have similar properties, we mix them together as one uh, one grade. In, uh, in Canada, we actually only have four species groups of lumber. It makes it a lot easier to to design with it when you know that there's only four material properties to deal with. I see. And I'm just curious right now, you you know, we're in the uh, northeast of, of the U.S. here, and we've been getting a lot of smoke from the, the fires. Is, is that going to um, is that going to affect the availability of wood for the construction industry? It's having a big impact. I was going to get into that a little later, but uh, it's it's probably the biggest wildfire season that we have had. And it's taken currently now it's only july and from what i understand from our colleagues at the forest products association so far the fire has taken about 12 times more wood than than we've actually than we actually harvest on an annual basis wow so it's wow. in the uh i have a stat somewhere along here but it's it's about um well maybe i won't remember the, <laughs> we'll talk well, about we'll the stat later. a little more yeah, yeah. later in the in the show, but uh, you mentioned your colleagues, and I think there's there's a group called the American Wood Council as well. How are they different? Uh, do you work together if you do? Yeah, we have the American Wood Council, um, and we have a number of other groups that uh, also we we work with. Uh, the APA Engineered Wood People. We have Woodworks. We have Thinkwood, and we have SLB. So American Wood Council is very closely aligned with the Canadian Wood Council. We both deal in codes and standards work. And actually, we, Canadian Wood Council, is a member of the American Wood Council. And um, 
actually on Sunday, I'm going over there for their annual set of technical committee meetings uh, for the whole week. Where are they located? They're in Washington, D.C. area. On the D.C. Okay, interesting. Now, what we call this show Building Science and Wood, a balanced design approach. Can can you talk a little bit about um, uh, what is meant? Well, what should our overall philosophy be in designing? Let's start with that and then get into a little more about the balanced design approach. Sure, yeah. Um, there's a whole pile of competing aspects to to designing a building. Um, and sometimes I say competing because sometimes, for example, with resilient design, you, you may want to use more materials. You want, you, you likely want to use a wood sheathing to resist the wind and seismic loads for your building. But some builders in certain locations say, Hey, I have another panel product. Uh, it's called insulation. And I want to use that instead of the wood sheathing. So, so that kind of competes with it. With with that, now, of course, you can use both. You can use the wood sheathing, and on top of that, put some insulation. That's the best approach. But there's also the affordability side of things. And so, which one do you pick? Again, you want to pick both of them, but but it does play into the decisions builders make. So we have resilience. We have the energy efficiency aspect. We have the affordability aspect. Um, now, when we go back to energy efficiency, the more insulation, the better, right? You want to have a highly efficient building envelope. and uh, But that impacts the carbon footprint. And so there's a huge scrutiny worldwide now, uh, for sure in Canada, about having a decarbonized environment, so low carbon materials. And so, A, you don't want to pick too many materials. And B, when you do pick materials, you want to have materials that have you know, the best carbon footprint uh, available. And then, of course, there's the fire resistance and durability aspects as well. So all those things have to be considered by the designer to make sure that they have that, what I call the balanced approach. So combining these resilient design, energy efficient design, carbon, affordable design, fire resistance and durability. I know... Uh, we have a big audience in the uh, restoration world, and, and they deal a lot with things like fire resistance and, and, and durability. Um, do you see more emphasis in those areas today than we have in the past? Yeah, all of these are being emphasized more. Uh, we've had um, we've had uh, windstorms that come through. That's everybody focuses on. Hey, we, let's make sure our buildings are wind resilient even climate resilient when we have those heat waves that go through everybody's the news yesterday was talking about all the heat waves, not only in, in the U S and Canada, but also Europe. So climate resilient as well. Uh, energy efficiency, of course, is, is, has been uh, important for probably about five or six years, or at least focused on for five or six years, but that does lead into the carbon aspects. And then of course we have so many people moving to North America that, and we have a huge shortage of houses for them to 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 go into. So affordability is also <laughs> being scrutinized as well. And then wildfires. So we want to make sure the buildings are designed so that they are at least wild, wildfire resistant. And then we don't want the materials to rot. And so there's an increase, especially in Canada. There's some built some standards that are being developed 
to make sure that all the products used are going to be durable for for its for its use. You know, I, I've got in my notes from talking with you earlier in the week that a wood frame house can resist an EF2 tornado. Is this any wood frame house or just, does it have to be built in a specific way? Well, that's a that's a good question. There's even a Globe and Mail article, which is a Toronto, Canada newspaper that that talked about the fact that, hey, are the houses keeping up with the extreme weather? And uh, I gave an interview for that. And, and in general, wood frame homes perform very well experimentally, both in the U.S. and Canada, in even the worst of earthquakes with just a few, you know, paying attention to some detail, uh, they act very well. But but no, not all homes can. And this is actually very um, front of mind today for me because just yesterday there was a, probably an EF0 or EF1, very low tornado, but it still wrecked 125 homes only a few miles from my house. It was a close call. So that's first first and foremost in, in, in my mind is the component about resilience. And so, um, yeah, we do have um, um, we do have some strategies and they are in this uh, S520 standard. It's a brand new standard in Canada that, that deals with um, how to make sure your home is highly resistant. And uh, I am going to go to this slide here that describes uh, what I talk about in a, about an hour presentation, how to, and I'm going to boil it down to like two minutes here, but how to design a highly resistant, highly wind resistant home. And this is based on the concepts of that CSA S520 standard that I, that's just brand new. It was uh, published in 2021 or 2022. I forget now. First step, making sure that the roof sheathing is attached well, and the standard goes and describes a better way of ensuring that the roof sheathing is fastened well. If the roof sheathing lifts off, your house is going to be toast from either water or the extra wind load that hits it. And then gable end roofs, you know, those triangular portions of the of, of wall that goes up to the roof line on certain homes. And uh, those are very susceptible for a few reasons. One, they're not constructed as well. And two, they're higher up, so they have higher wind loads. And then just making sure everything in the upper framing is connected to the lower roof framing better. Those things include chimneys, if, if people still have chimneys attached to their home, or even dormers, seeing a number of houses where the dormer has flown off. Um, Ensuring just like the roof sheathing is attached well, making sure the wall sheathing is attached very well and with nails that are uh, perhaps even better than commonly used. There is something called the roof sheathing ring shank nail. It's kind of like a combination of a screw and a nail and you can drive them in with power nails, but but those allow the sheathing to be fastened a bit more securely. Then also uh, making sure there's enough wall sheathing so that the building doesn't rack sideways. Um, again, I mentioned um, the use of insulation, sometimes in place of wood sheathing. And um, so while we endorse making sure that there's enough wood, uh, there's wood sheathing used on the house, it should be used in enough locations. And so the, uh, I've shown a building, it's very small here. The center image is a building that racked during construction about a year ago when a derecho came through the Ottawa area 
and uh, just just shifted that house while it was under construction. You know, I'm wondering, um, with respect to the wall sheathing, what's the difference between using OSB and plywood in that respect? OSB and plywood act very similarly. They have the same properties, and in the standards, um, they're treated virtually the same way. So no strength difference. It boils down really to the thickness and the nail patterns that are used to fasten the sheathing to the walls. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So uh, got... yeah, continuing on here with um, what's probably the most important um, is the overall uplift of the building. And so keeping the roof on, we talked about the roof sheathing, but making sure that the roof framing is attached well enough to the walls below. Um, the codes allow it to just be nailed, but uh, hurricane straps, hurricane ties, that's what's really needed. And not just hurricane ties or straps that are going from the roof trusses to the double top plates that are typically used in houses and small buildings, but then getting from the double top plates into the studs and across all the different assemblies. And so ensuring that we have a complete load path tied together in with strong materials, whether that's overlapped wood sheeting or separate metal straps that do that, bringing it all the way down to the foundation is key. And then the last three points are, are very, um, uh, they're not as much the structural as, as much as keeping it dry, but um, underneath the shingles, having a very robust underlayment that sticks to the roof sheeting is really good. Um, I've seen a lot of roof shingles blow off, but if they have something underneath it um, that protects the inside of the house from water damage, uh, you're far better off. And then the other ones are very is a bit more expensive, but making sure you have high strength garage doors and also high wind resistant windows. You know, Rob, I'm wondering, it, it, I feel like I'm looking at a Florida um, <laughs> code requirements in Florida. Is that accurate to say this is pretty similar to what you would be required to do in certain areas of the country or in the United States anyway? I don't know about up in Canada, but um, it seems like these same practices used there are probably becoming more important wherever you build. I would say so. Um, it's similar. It was inspired a little bit by the Florida Building Code. Um, we worked with somebody who who uh, is a designer engineer in the Florida area and who had contributed to the Florida uh, Residential Code. But they're based on they're based on a, a slightly lower load than you would get in in, in that area. And one mm -hmm. of the one of the although all the concepts are identical, tying it down, making sure your roof sheathing is fastened better. Um, all these con concepts were based on EF two level hurricane or EF two level tornado wind speeds, um, which are about uh, two hundred kilometers an hour. If you have your calculator, you can convert that probably to miles per hour. But, but it's high wind, but probably not quite as high as the Florida coast would see. And so one of the, one of the differences is probably the windows. And I know I'm not an expert on windows, but I know from another window expert that the quality of glass you can get varies. They could be all hurricane resistant, but you can have a hurricane resistant that's suitable for Florida. You can have a hurricane resistant that's suitable for New York. 
And so the New York hurricane resistance is sufficient for EF2 tornadoes based on what my expert told me. Now, another topic we hear a lot about is um, carbon and yep. carbon and climate change. I wonder if you could touch on that and how wood construction um, stacks up essentially with respect to carbon. Sure. I'd like to quote uh, a colleague of mine first by saying, um, if someone was to invent a self-replicating solar-powered carbon dioxide sucking machine that stores carbon and energy in a building material while producing oxygen as a waste product, they'd be rich. It's my colleague from the Canadian Wood Council who says that. And of course, he's referring to trees and they absorb carbon. They do this at their big plants, their, fa their factories of storing carbon. They do this through what we learned in high school, photosynthesis, where the carbon dioxide goes in, combines with water and sun, produces what ultimately turns out to be the wood, the sugar that converts to wood, and beneficial to everybody is the oxygen. So the uh, carbon dioxide is then changed into oxygen. And what I like about that is... Uh, um, the 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 wood then stores the carbon from the carbon dioxide and releases the oxygen and that's what the world is looking at as a culprit for climate change uh right now so wood is 50 percent carbon that's a fact that uh, you can look up uh, many places including the forest products handbook the rest is oxygen hydrogen a few other things that are uh, less important and i can go into details using the periodic table <laughs> if you'd like about about how the math works out, um, but chemistry wasn't my forte. That's why I, uh, that's why I went into structural engineering. Um, <laughs> but there's the, the there's something called the molecular weight, and that's the comparison between carbon and oxygen. And so when you have carbon, it has a molecular weight of about twelve, and you have oxygen sixteen, and there's two oxygen molecules in carbon dioxide. And so when you ratio the carbon dioxide over carbon, you get you get a ratio of about 3.67. And so that all boils down to if wood is 50% carbon, and you do all that math that I just showed you with the periodic table, uh, each piece of wood, um, each kilogram of wood, dry wood, has sequestered over its life 1.83 kilograms of carbon dioxide. You can think of that like, hey, we, uh, we weigh like roughly 200 pounds and we eat a lot more than 200 pounds of food but uh as we as we as we grow and in, in our age we eat way more weight and food than our body is so the tree is doing the same with carbon dioxide it's it's taking in this carbon dioxide sequestering that and building up its muscle call it um in dry wood and so that's what is very beneficial to the environment and I like to put that into uh, terms we can perhaps relate to. If you had uh, one telephone pole or a utility pole that's made of Douglas fir, that's another wood species that's prevalent in both Canada and the western part of, of the U.S. And it's commonly used in our telephone poles or utility poles. And they, they're about one meter cubed of volume. And uh, when we consider the weight the density of that Douglas fir, and we talk about that 50% of wood is carbon thing, and we do that math with the periodic table, it turns out that each of those telephone poles take sequesters about uh, 1,000 kilograms, 900 kilograms 
of carbon dioxide. So that's a very good news message for uh, fighting climate change. Now, why, I guess another thing is, you know, why do we care so much about this carbon issue? Um, we care a lot about it because now as we build more efficiently, we've in the last 10 or 15 years, we've had this focus of building energy efficient homes. And that's great. We're getting to some more energy efficient homes. But as we build those more energy efficient homes, the proportional impact on the environment um, due to the materials increases relative to that operational energy that, that that is used to keep the house warm or cool in the summer. And so that's why it's 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 being in, increasingly scrutinized about what materials the impact of those materials have in the environment. It's not just the operational, the, the result of the operational energy in the form of operational carbon, but it's also the, what we call the embodied carbon, the carbon, the carbon um, that goes into the atmosphere as a result of making the materials. And so that's why we need to focus on carbon. And really we got to focus on decarbonizing. Now, what I, I got a text, but I, I want to reword it a little bit. Um, is the CO2, when a, a tree dies for whatever reason, you know, you've got these fires, you've got um, trees that fall because of windstorms and so on and so forth. Sure. Are they still sequestering that CO2, but less, uh, is, it, is it being released more rapidly when they die? uh they it starts to break down and release yes okay yeah, that, that's what happens and of course we've talked about the wildfires that's releasing it very quickly which is bad and so um that's where our friends in the forestry side are are working with government to try to make sure that um the way we harvest forests are done considering all aspects again it's a balanced approach we don't want to wipe out all the forests but at the same time we want to make sure we have some fire breaks and we want to harvest it in a way that doesn't leave a lot of wood on the ground and they're they're very good at doing that but um but focusing on making that even better is something that can help because we leave things on the ground and they can start to they will start to to um rot of course it nourishes that's nourishment for the ground and then that's good it's nourishing for further trees but but the but the more we actually sequester into products the better i'm curious what's the take for the typical tree nowadays to grow to the point where you can use it as lumber how many years that's a good that's a good question um, my understanding, uh, relying on my friends at the Forest Products Association is, and some of our mills too, it's somewhere between 40 to 80 years. Oh, really? Wow. So it's growing, it's sequestering carbon, uh, carbon dioxide for the 40 years. But the thing we have to keep in mind is it reaches a maximum and then it starts to absorb less carbon. And again, I'm talking a little bit out of my structural engineering world here, but but it's it's very beneficial to actually harvest those trees at the peak time when they're when they're done at the peak of their of their carbon sequ carbon dioxide sequestering phase. 
before they start to um, go downhill as far as the absorbing of the carbon and also definitely before they start to die off uh, and as you mentioned before drop in the forest and start to start releasing that carbon carbon dioxide 40 to 80 years that's fascinating to me i always i, I thought it was a little quicker than that um but maybe that's because i'm thinking about wood being grown down in like georgia etc that could be yeah I think it may be a little quicker. You know, they've been able to uh, get that 20 years for the pulp mill, somebody's telling me here on, on the text. So that's very interesting. Okay. I'll tell you what, what I think is a good, this is a good break point. I want to stop for halftime. And when we come back, I want to go into a little bit about things like cross-laminated timber, mass timber construction, which I know you, you, you're prepared to talk to us about. So sure, let's yeah. take a break. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be back with the second half with Robert Jockman. I'll get it right, Rob, <laughs> in just a minute. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted, full-service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, The Environmental Information Association, EIA's Multidisciplinary Membership, collects, generates, and disseminates information concerning environmental and occupational health hazards in the built environment at eia-usa.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, iicrc.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the oldest and largest nonprofit professional trade association dedicated to providing leadership and promoting best practices through advocacy, standards, and professional qualifications for the restoration industry at restorationindustry.org. Industry sponsors are Particles Plus, feature rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Tramex Meters, developing modern dynamic moisture meters and humidity monitoring systems since 1974, TramexMeters.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, HealthyIndoors.com. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview with Rob Jockman here with the Canadian Wood Council. Cliff, I think you've got a follow-up question for Rob. Yeah, I, I do, actually. I had a, an audience uh, member uh, text me earlier today, and the question really dealt with wood uh, following fire damage restoration. So the wood, in, in many situations, is cleaned. Uh, oftentimes, it's uh, abraded with uh, perhaps... Uh, dry ice or uh, in certain situations, sand or glass beads and and so on and so forth. And this really prepares it for a coating. 
And in many situations, what happens is this wood up in attic spaces or areas that were affected by fire, you know, after the cleaning is going to be coated. And oftentimes it, uh, a latex coating can go on it. Sometimes a shellac coating can go on it. And really the question is, is, is permeability really an issue or really, you know, would it be a concern? So is permeability a concern for a finish? Is that what you're asking? No, no, for coding. wood. Yeah, for, no, no. Is, is, is you know, does, does the wood need, I guess, um, does, does, does the lack of permeability, some of, some of these coatings are permeable, some of them are not. So yeah. would the lack of a permeable coating really cause problems uh, on wood? Uh, it could, I think. Um, if you put a treatment on wood where wood is on the outside of your wall, for you're talking indoor use of wood? Oh, yeah, this is all indoor. Indoor. Um, that's a good question. I have not dealt with that type of a, of, of a question before. Um, I'm th I think more from a building science perspective, when you have coatings on the outside of wood that restrict its permeability, and uh, what I what I, I mean, wood is fairly permeable. It could it could it could act as a as a vapor retarder, um, because it's actually a smart vapor retarder itself. So it, it changes its permeance based on the moisture content in the wood, and so it can act as a smart vapor retarder, having a, a very low permeance when it's on the inside of a house, uh, and where the relative humidity is low, and a, and a much higher um, permeance when it's on the outside or it's in a high relative humidity area. But as far as issues with indoor wood having a low permeance, I, I don't really have a comment on that. Well, I, I, you know, the one thing I can tell you historically, uh, I, I've seen that it has not been a problem. If it was a problem, I think that the industry uh, would know about it. And in certain situations, it's impossible to seal all the sides uh, of the wood you know, right. in certain situations. I can't get to all of it. So, you know, it's the edges or it's one side, you know, that's up against the framing. And really, I, personally, I haven't encountered it. And I, I've been doing this over half a century. But, you know, <laughs> we do get questions on it. And, and there's a debate because you know, I think certain other materials you know, I think permeability is, is a bigger issue. And plus, it's not solid wood. You have a piece of wood, you have 14 inches of airspace, and then you have another piece of wood. You know, in many situations, it's, you know, it's not solid, uh, you know, construction such as a log cabin or or whatever. But yep. I just wanted your your, your I, opinion. I do have I do have a perspective from a timber frame right. uh, perspective. I used to work at a timber, timber frame manufacturer for about mm -hmm. nine or 10 years as the... Um, of the supervisor of the design and engineering department. And so I engineered a number of timber frame buildings. And of course the house is very dry. It could be very dry in the middle. And when you have larger timbers, it could check and make a gunshot sound um, as it shrinks. So wood certainly does allow moisture in and out and it shrinks and, and, and expands accordingly. There's well-known equations of how to, how to deal with that. The other thing about wood and its ability to take moisture in and out is it's actually good for the indoor air quality to have the 
and the humidity of the building to have the wood kind of be a buffer for uh, excess moisture at one point and then releasing it back when it's drier. Mm -hmm. Thank you. A few things my log home here is good at. <laughs> it's not very good at insulation, that's for sure. But uh, you know. <laughs> I anyway. think the techniques have improved with log frame homes too to make them more energy efficient and uh, air airtight as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I just, I've got an older one here, but uh, we, we get by, you know, I've got a tight lid on top and um, it seems to, seems to help quite a bit. As long as I have things sealed at the bottom and at the top, you know, um, I've had pretty good luck with it. But How uh, old is your log home? It's about 50 years old now. Okay. So it's, uh, it's older. It looks like it's, Oh, anyway, um, let's talk a little bit about what is cross-laminated timber. That's something we hear about more and more now, and I'm not sure if our audience is that familiar with what it is. Sure, yeah. Um, you can visualize cross-laminated timber as taking a number of two-by-fours. They're roughly two-by-four. Call them two-by-fours. And laying them down, you know, uh, Side by side, flat ed uh, edge to edge. Uh, so, so what I mean by that is line them down on the ground so the wide part of the, the stud is exposed. Like you would a, a fence, a fence, lining up fence, uh, fencing beside each other. And then you put another layer that's perpendicular to it. And then another layer perpendicular to that again. So you could have three layers of tightly spaced two by four materials or five layers, or seven layers, or even nine layers to form longer span floor systems. And that's what cross-laminated timber is. And it's it's pretty neat because it's, it stores a lot of that carbon that I mentioned earlier. It can expand, or it could span, I should say, a longer, a long distance. It can replace things like tilt up concrete in some cases, it can make pretty durable walls and strong walls. And that's what it is. And why is it becoming, it seems like I'm hearing more about it. I'm not sure exactly why. Why is it becoming more popular? I or think it's it? back to, it is becoming more popular. Uh, there's a number of manufacturers in both Canada and the U.S. now that, that are fabricating cross-laminated timbers, CLT, we call it for short. But it did start in Europe about 15 years ago. And uh, in Canada about, um, I don't know, I'd say time flies. So I'll say five years, but it's probably more than five years and um, it's popular because of that carbon story that we've been talking about before. It's it's a it's a it's one way that building owners and designers can say, "Hey, I am reducing my carbon footprint." Also, it also can it, it can be used in buildings where there's very little waste, and it could be hmm. used in buildings um, where there's only three or four contractors putting up all the floors and the walls. Um, with a crane and I've seen some of the earlier ones where there's just like a wheelbarrow of sawdust at the end of the nine story project. And that's, that's your waste. Hmm. And what about mass timber construction? That's another thing we hear more about. We did uh, a show with, uh, I think it was Bensonwood uh, was the name of the company and um, uh, the name of the owners is escaping me at the moment, but they were talking a little about mass timber construction. Yeah, that's probably Ted Benson. That's right. Ted Benson. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He's a timber guru. He's written several books on timber framing. Um, 
So mass timber is kind of the, the generic phrase we give. So CLT is a form of mass timber. Um, these products I'm, I'm showing on the screen now, laminated structural, uh, sorry, laminated strand lumber, laminated veneer lumber, parallel strand lumber. Those are all engineered materials that also are part of the mass timber family. But those are older ones, and I bet you a lot of your listeners have heard of those before. They're very popular rim boards, for example, LSL all the time. CLT is a little newer, but there's also even newer stuff coming around. Well, it's new and it's old. Nail laminated timber. Nail laminated timber has been around actually in some really old, hundred-year-old type of buildings. Uh, but now it's now it's part of some standards. There's actually standards that have been developed. Uh, in Canada, at least, there's a new standard out called CSA uh, O325, brand new standard talking about how to make sure that the quality and the performance of this is done correctly. And that's just taking a bunch of two by fours or two by sixes or um, not sure how deep they would go and then nailing them uh, um, from the flat, from the large side into the next piece. So it's forming, so the the, the strong side is, the strong dimension is, is vertical is um it's vertical so it's like a bunch of closely spaced uh floor joists they're all tight together though and nailed together and they form very strong floors they could even be stronger than cross laminated timber because they're all in their strong direction so that's another part of the mass timber family and even newer especially uh environmentally friendly is something called dowel laminated timber and so that takes the same type of concept laying a bunch of two by fours or two by sixes or two by eights on its edge. And instead of using steel nails, using wood dowels and drilling them in. And, and that is really cool because the end of life story for these materials is really good because you can always reuse these. There's no danger of cutting nails with your saw. Uh, even on site, you can cut, cut a hole in it if you need to without damaging your saws. So that's that's uh, another mass timber product, and then the last one that I'm not too familiar with, but I but I know is around is mass plywood panels. So if you visualize going to Home Depot and looking at the stack of plywood panels on a orange, uh, you know, racking system, uh, but instead of them all being loose, they're all glued together with uh, adhesives, and those are used to span, you know, quite quite far as well. And what I'm now showing on my screen is a big loader, a bulldozer type thing. And it's sitting on top of a 40 foot panel. It's 10 inches thick, four feet wide. And actually it's supported on two supports that are 28 feet apart. So it's uh, cantilevered a little bit on each side. And this uh, big heavy chunk of mach machinery is causing this this mass plywood panel to deflect five inches, which is, is pretty cool. Now, one of the things that I think our restoration people would ask you, though, is about the durability of these products when exposed to water. We, we get that a lot. Um, are they more problematic when exposed to water as opposed to a, you know, 20 foot, two by 20, the two by 12 or something like that? Uh, so the mass mass timber in general, or well, I guess it would be different for each type, huh? Yeah, it would be, but but really, you got to just uh, first of all, 
um, they just need to be able to dry. They're not going to rot in a few days. <laughs> okay. um, and you do need to, uh, uh, you want to, you want to dry them as quickly as you, as you can. They're not as susceptible to mold as for example, um, papery products are, but, but yeah, design is uh, important. Having correct design construction details, very important. All right. How does, you know, we see wood construction a lot in North America, um, over in Europe and, and other parts of the world, you get more, uh, concrete, you know, cinder block, they even down South in Florida. How does, how does, um, wood stack up as a product for construction compared? I mean, why wood? There you go. <laughs> well, we talked about the carbon sequestering aspects of it. Uh, it's also a very good natural insulator. It, it um, and I can talk more about that later as well, but it insulates much closer to actual insulation than concrete and steel do. And so if you're using that in a, for example, a wall system, you can get a much higher performing wall from an insulation perspective than you would, for example, a steel stud wall. And it also has a very good strength to weight ratio and it's very lightweight. So I've seen some cases where they could use wood framing on a site where they couldn't have used a heavy material because of either the, the soil or what was below grade uh, tunnels or, or other infrastructure. And wood is also healthy to have in the home. And then, of course, as we're getting to these heavier type of mass timber products, there are bigger, taller opportunities for wood to be used as well. How tall is the building? Uh, let's put it this way. Um, the tallest buildings using wood construction. How high can we go now? Uh, it's, there's probably a... Probably not a specific limit, but um, I know in Canada, and and um, forget if I mentioned this already to you, but uh, there's a building called Brock Commons in in uh, uh, British Columbia, the west west coast of uh, Canada, and it's 18 stories out of mass timber. Uh, sorry, 17 stories of mass timber plus one concrete, so 18 stories in total. It can go tall, but there's other ones that are being built around the world, not just in Canada or the U.S., but around the world that are either planned to be much taller or are in the works and they're slightly taller. Interesting. And could you go into a little more and elaborate on the insulation value of wood? Uh, sure. Yep. Yep. Flicking through my different slides here. The the reason wood is in, has high insulative properties are those air pockets that are within it. And so that allows the wood to become um, very insulative. Let me show you or describe here. I mentioned steel and concrete earlier. Wood has an R value of about 1.2 per inch. That's the R value in uh, US terminology. 1.2 per inch insulation, four, five, maybe six R value per inch. Concrete is uh, 0.06 and steel, of course, is a conductor, so it doesn't even count. Um, so wood is 20 times more insulative and 40 times more insulative than concrete and steel. And that's all do, dealing with those. Um, it's all because of the air, the air pockets 
and uh, that that's what makes wood naturally an insulator interesting interesting okay um let me get to let's see is it again going back to the fire perspective on things you know i think a lot of people when they see these large wood buildings they're concerned about fire and yeah. i wonder if you could touch on that topic for a moment sure yeah yeah um I'll, I'll talk about fire too but um what i wanted to highlight was we used to build older older buildings uh taller buildings i should say we used there's some old buildings that used to be taller and then restrictions came into the code lowering the permitted heights of buildings and so uh, you asked about um, how tall can we go. I'm showing that Canada in 2017 built this tall wood house, which we refer to as Brock Commons, about 57 meters. There's another one built in 2019, 85 meters, and another one planned uh, somewhere in the world that's 300 meters. I don't know where that would be, but you can see they're growing, and that's because the code recognizes that wood can safely be used. But examples of old buildings that were wood frame or wood buildings before there's one in australia that is pretty famous it's called the royal albert hotel and it was built in the early 1900s and had eight stories now the outside of the building is is um, stone or brick other materials but the inside the structure supporting it is heavy timber frame so that's an example from australia and um in Canada, we have one that's nine stories, also built early 1900s, seven stories above, two below, and there's a nice little pub inside this one, which I've been into uh, when I've been to Vancouver. You can see the inside of that is, um, you know, there's a nice timber frame in there. Yeah, it's beautiful. And then Brock Commons, this is an example of the Brock Commons I was talking about. The beauty of it also was that it was, a lot of components were prefabricated and uh, just craned into place, so it went up very quickly. Rob, what go back to that if you would for just a moment? The uh, what's that blue? I mean, where he's standing there is that just uh, on the exterior of that wood? Yeah, that's just on the exterior of the wood. Um, I think that was part of the clip that was there okay. to to house the panels. I didn't know. I thought maybe it was insulation on top of there, but it wouldn't make any sense. Okay. Yeah, no, no. All right. And then you were going to go over to the fire. Fire, yeah. Fire, uh, the thing about mass timber, it does perform predictably. Uh, I have a structural engineering background, but our team has a number of fire experts as well. And they tell me that um, the heat from the flames drives the moisture inside of the timber. And so it makes the center less susceptible to fire. And also the surface, as you probably can, can witness when you go to a campfire, the surface chars. And so you don't start a campfire with a large log. You start it with some small kindling to get it really hot first. And uh, so, so it chars and that actually forms a protective layer. So that was our theory. That was our, that it's, it is reality, but we did test that. We, we tested it in Canada last summer through what's called a mass timber fire demonstration test program. And it was actually the largest timber mass timber fire test in the world. I think it still is. And um, when I give you some of these slides, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the link as well, but there's a whole microsite link that you, you, can, you can see 
um, that goes over the results of this. But in general, uh, I'll go over it quickly. It was a two-story, four-bay structure. Um, you know, if you have your calculator handy, it's 334 meters <laughs> squared building. So whatever that is in square feet, uh, probably around 3,000 square feet. Okay. And so it was all mass timber. And what I thought was really cool, here's a nip for those that are viewing this. Um, that's the size of the mass timber that that was in there for a floor system. Wow. Showing about 12 inch deep. Um, this is this looks like a nail laminated timber being hoisted into place. And I'm showing now an image of this two-story building. It got really hot. We I was there, I witnessed this test. Um so hot that those pylons that you see there melted. Um, the back of the TV screen that was about the distance we are now, like from this image, it the back of that started to melt and all the audience had to go back a little bit further. So it became a very hot fire. But in 25 minutes, it it extinguished itself. It, it developed this charring effect and went out by itself, despite the fact that it was there was a bit of a breeze, which helps propagate the smoke, the the fire, and uh, it went out all by itself. There was, of course, a fire crew handy in case it didn't, or in case there was another problem. But they weren't needed, and it just died out. So it's not just all um, fantasy. It does actually, it does actually go out. You know that that leads me to another question here now. You showed that charring on what looked like, I don't know, a four by four or a six by six, whatever it may be. Yeah. Does the same thing happen in a forest fire? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I bet you there's a lot of logs that are falling down um, that only the outside is is damaged. Yeah, it seems like you might be able to still use some of that, but I, I, I don't know. I, I always assumed it burned all the way through, you know, but now I'm starting to think, well, maybe it doesn't, maybe there's some, still some use for that. It's possible. It might not be cost effective to do, but it's possible. Interesting. Interesting. I'm not a wildfire expert. I just, I know that we want to prevent um, the fires and I know how to do that with a house, but from a wildfire perspective, um, it's a very good question. Hey, Joe, you know, one of the things that, that happens with wildfires is that, you know, if you're having pine or if you're having spruce or if you're having fir in those soft wood trees, you have a lot of oil that's actually, you know, in in the, uh, you know, they don't have leaves, they have cones. And that oil, uh, you know, kind of contributes to it as well. I mean, it's going to, um, you know, it's a built-in oil source, actually. Yeah. Uh, so and those wildfires question. possibly because of what you just brought up cliff is um they're super hot and yeah. they can jump like a kilometer even right. from what i understand they can jump a, there's the heat from it is so hot it can jump a long distance uh across a body of water and keep it going propagating in the adjacent forests I've got a text question. I don't know if this is something you can answer or not, but I figured I'd throw it out there again because of our our restoration uh, audience. And what, the question is: Wouldn't the, and we're talking about the mass timber construction? Wouldn't the permeability be very low and make it difficult to dry? So, 
these guys are always thinking about something that got wet. Is it going to be more difficult to dry out mass timber construction than it would be regular construction? Uh, it's possible, but also it's not as susceptible to the damage of the moisture. If you're if you're talking about things like uh, oriented strand OSB, for example, that's probably going to be ruined by moisture, whereas this is probably salvageable. I am sorry, I just don't have the expertise in the restoration side of things. Hey, hey Joe, uh, if I could comment. Um, okay. I think it depends where it's at. Like, you know, if 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 this if these are floors that are in a building and the water's from up above, what's going to happen is the majority of the water is going to run off. It's different if you have flooding. So if, if, if you have, you know, catastrophic flooding uh, and, you know, the water covers that entire floor and remains on top of that entire floor for, for some period of time, it's going to be a whole lot worse. And I, I think there it would be uh, a different story. Could be, yep. yep. Rob, I know this is not your area of expertise, but I, I want to throw it out. We had talked about this earlier and I had a text from a, from our audience. What about the cost of this type of like mass timber construction versus typical construction? Is it a huge difference or? Um, that's a good question. Also, I know there's some case studies that uh, that we've done even five years ago, and it shows that it can be comparable. Um, the one problem recently, though, was high lumber prices uh, brought the lumber and CLT consequently mass timber up. But as we get more contractors and builders and developers more comfortable and more knowledgeable about building with wood, it is comparable or it's going to be cheaper. Interesting. And when now, you when you also, when you consider the carbon price, eventually, like they're doing in Europe, there's a price to carbon. Okay. okay. And when you factor that in, I think, I think it'll be a, a definite win to be building with wood. Very interesting. Um, do you have an extra five minutes, Rob? We, we normally finish at noon, but or at one o'clock. But if uh, I yep, think we sure, yep. mm -hmm. I've got another important topic or two here. I'm going to have to skip the roundup because if we go to roundup, we're going to not be able to give you controls back, according to my engineer here. So we'll, we'll skip what we call our roundup here. But I wanted to get into um, environmental product declarations, because I think that's an important topic. And we, we had prepared to talk about it, and we didn't get a chance yet. Let's get to that. Okay. I always visualize environmental product declarations, like that chocolate bar. I have another one right here. And the back of that chocolate bar has a list of ingredients in it, the nutrition in, and the nutrition facts. And an environmental product declaration is very similar to the nutrition facts of food. And so, you know, for a given size or a given unit, a given size of that chocolate bar or that food, there's, there's the nutritional aspects of it, or there's the life cycle um, impact measures for that wood product. And so one of the main ones we talk about now is the global warming potential. And we equate that to the carbon dioxide equivalent uh, in kilograms or whatever units. And so an EPD then gives you an environmental product declaration, then gives you 
an idea of the impact that this product will have um, in your building. And people are tempted to compare materials with uh, with based on their EPDs. That's not strictly per permitted or, or 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 good, but uh, uh, unless they have the same kind of use. So if it's if it's um, you know you got to compare it in the right way to be able to do that, and then you then you can is my understanding. But but it certainly gives you an impact, and for that for that material. And, um, so that's, that's what it's all about. And I do, we do recognize the importance of EPDs. They're, they're becoming more and more important. Um, the wood industry has been putting out EPDs for many years and, uh, decades even. And so we tag team with, uh, who we talked about earlier, the American wood council, uh, to to put out industry environmental product declarations for a number of wood products, and they give you all that information I was just referring to. And of course, the, as I mentioned, the main one is the global warming potential. But more and more people are saying, okay, well, we want all materials to have these environmental product declarations. So I think this, this will become more uh, important, and it'll also have to become more regionalized as well. And the last thing I wanted to make sure we got in here is what do you think, you know, net zero is a big thing, especially here in, in the States right now, the uh, DOE net zero building program. We're trying to build in a way that's net zero. What do you think is a good wall for net zero? I think a good wall, it depends on all the rest of your building, but I think a good wall is probably at most an R value of 30. And it'd be wood framed with probably, well, it'd have to be with exterior insulation. But remember, going back to the very early part of this uh, podcast, we want to use a balanced approach for that wall. So a good wall is going to have a decent or a good enough amount of insulation, R30 probably at the most. It's also going to have the ability to resist the wind loads and the earthquake loads. So it's going to have some form of sheathing on the outside, wood sheathing or structural sheathing, uh, OSB or plywood. Um, but it's also going to consider the uh, environmental impact. So the insulation that you put on the outboard side of it is going to be something that has the best um, EPD that you can get. The environmental product declaration will show which one you should use. And it might be something like a rock wool uh, or even perhaps better, a wood fiber insulation. I know there's a new plant going into the Eastern area of the US, I think it's Maine, um, that's producing a new um, wood fiber insulation. So the wood fiber insulation that's produced can be either kind of a softer stuff that you can put into the cavity of your wall and you can also produce more rigid ones that can go outboard of your of your insul of your uh, wood sheathing. Now, when you say R thirty um, is kind of the the upper end, why is that? Is that because we get diminishing returns beyond R thirty? Yep, uh, I think so. And people are doing analysis of what can get them to a net zero house, and so when you have a net zero house or net zero building, uh, based on the experience, at least that we have in Canada, 
we have a number of builders that are building net zero energy homes and they top out at about the R30, effective R30 insulation to get that. Combined with all the other stuff, the roof insulation, um, perhaps solar panels, all that stuff. But the wall system itself can can be about an R30. And Cliff, did you have any final questions or thoughts? Uh, just, just one. Uh, any comment on adding uh, fireproofing to wood or adding, um, you know, other types of additives, uh, you know, anti-termite or wood-destroying insects or, you know, treating like telephone poles and so on and so forth. Does that adversely affect uh, lifespan of wood, any of these treatments? Well, uh, you bring up the telephone poles uh, or utility poles. Um, that's crucial to have a treatment on it, uh, but it makes it basically permanent. We have permanent wood foundations as well that are used, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the north. They're treated um, with chemicals that can allow, allow them to um, uh, last indefinitely also. It's used in the north a lot because it's very hard to get concrete foundations or concrete trucks, trucks in remote areas. So bringing in PWFs, permanent wood foundations there is, is crucial. But yeah, they need to be treated for those applications. Also, they need good detailing as well to make sure that the water drains off. Thank you. Fire, fire treating you brought up. Uh, right. I'm not sure about the benefit the extra benefit you get on that, because as I mentioned, wood wood does char, and so from a mass timber perspective, I'm not I'm not too aware of treatments that can be used um, or that are needed for that. Rob, before we go, we always like to give the uh, our guests the last word. Is there anything we missed that you'd like to add? I think we actually got through <laughs> what we thought might take two shows. So, congrats on that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what we didn't get through is like the biophilic aspects of wood. Um, we also didn't talk too much about the indoor air quality of wood, even though that's the <laughs> that's your that's your uh, show. But uh, in both regards, wood is pretty favorable in in those two. So we could talk about that uh, at some point down the road. Um, hospitals are using wood to make people feel and feel better and actually it's been documented to show that if you bring nature like wood into a building like a hospital um they heal quicker they 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 um they're on the fast track a little bit better when you have an environment such as that very interesting very interesting i you know i think sometimes people look at these shows and we're going to talk about wood and they don't realize how how uh, wide a range of topics we're going to be talking about. You know, it just looks like wood, but we've gotten into quite a few things. I was very, uh, very interested. And I'm glad we were able to get you on. I look forward to seeing you at summer camp. Yeah, very good. Yes. Thank you for All the right. opportunity here. Our pleasure. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Robert Jockman from the Canadian Wood Council. My co-host is E-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls, most importantly, our loyal audience and our sponsors. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening.